Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, November 2nd. Here are election 2020 updates from today's show. Trump's victory in 2016 unleashed gleeful joy among Americans who voted for him and stunned the larger group that voted for Hillary Clinton. The trauma of that night has hung over the party ever since. Many Democrats say they will not allow themselves to become too optimistic this year, even with some promising signs for Biden, who's in a much better position than Clinton was. So many are afraid they could be wrong again. And the Biden campaign is happy that their backers are not getting overconfident. That said, polls suggest strongly that Kamala Harris is quietly on the brink of a possibly historic leap The California senator could be voted the nation's first female vice president this week. She would achieve that without ever making pinky promises to tell little girls they could be president the way Elizabeth Warren did during her campaign. Harris, as a candidate in the primaries and as Biden's running mate, does not have a gender-conscious slogan like Clinton's I'm with her, and she didn't center her campaign's message around women's equality like Kirsten Gillibrand did. But in her own quieter way, Chelsea Janes reports that Harris has embraced her presence on the cusp of history. Her potential to become the first woman so close to the presidency has gotten less attention than previous female candidates at this level, in part because of the many crises gripping our nation, in part because of other firsts that Harris embodies as a black and Asian American woman, and in part because of her relatively low-profile way of grappling with gender. Even though the election hasn't happened yet, And anything could happen tomorrow. Intense jockeying is currently underway here in Washington for jobs in a potential Biden-Harris administration. Democratic consultant Hillary Rosen, a close ally of the Biden team, said you should not expect Biden to pick any bomb throwers for his cabinet if he prevails tomorrow. She says he's not somebody who is coming to disrupt Washington. Rather, she said, he is coming to heal Washington. Hillary is one of 22 Democratic aides, strategists, and advisors to Biden's campaign, as well as close outside allies with knowledge of the transition process, who spoke this weekend to my colleagues Annie Linsky and Sean Sullivan. Biden's team hopes to quickly name a White House chief of staff if tomorrow goes well. An early favorite is Ron Klain, who was Biden's chief of staff when he was vice president and also served as Ebola czar to Barack Obama, which means he has experience dealing with pandemics. A second, if less likely, possibility for chief is Congressman Cedric Richmond of Louisiana. Richmond would be the first African-American White House chief of staff. And if he's not chosen, he's likely to be given another senior role with broad responsibilities in the White House. Jake Sullivan, a top advisor for policy to the Biden campaign, who's often been on the trail with him, could be in line for a top job on health issues. Sullivan's also mentioned as the third most likely pick for potential chief of staff. Here are some other takeaways from Annie and Sean's reporting, combined with what I've been hearing from my own conversations with Democratic sources. Diversity is going to be a high priority for Biden if he wins. He loves the idea of having lots of firsts in his appointments. Michelle Flournoy is considered a frontrunner for defense. She'd be the first woman to run the Pentagon. If Democrats control the Senate, which means they'll have the votes they need to confirm Biden's appointees, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice is considered a favorite for state. Another name frequently mentioned is Tony Blinken, a longtime Biden aide who was his staff director when he chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Simone Sanders is one of several names being mentioned for White House press secretary. She'd be the first African-American to hold that high visibility post. We're also hearing lots of chatter from insiders about two potential Latino picks for the cabinet. 
Javier Becerra, California's attorney general, could be in line for the Justice Department, and Alejandro Mayorkas, who helped devise the DACA program for the Obama administration, could run DHS. Pete Buttigieg is mentioned frequently as a potential ambassador to the United Nations. He would be the first openly gay person to hold that job. Also expect Biden to give a couple high-profile posts to Republicans if he wins. Perhaps someone like former Ohio Governor John Kasich or current Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. John McCain's widow, Cindy, is on the transition team and in line for something posh if she wants it. Perhaps a choice ambassadorship in Europe. When Sean asked her about this, Mrs. McCain laughed and said, quote, I'm very superstitious, so let's get past Tuesday. Now, Biden is married to a teacher, and he wants to pick someone for the Department of Education who has experience in primary or secondary education to replace Betsy DeVos, a billionaire who is disliked by many teachers and teacher unions. A possible education secretary is Randy Weingarten, head of the American Federation of Teachers. How badly does she want the job? Well, she's been on a 30-plus day bus tour to support Biden's candidacy. Other names in the mix for education include Lily Garcia, a former head of the National Education Association, and Linda Darling-Hammond, who taught at Stanford and is now president of the California State Board of Education. In other election-related news, Trump held rallies on Sunday in Michigan, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Biden spent the entire day in Philadelphia, less than an hour from his house in Wilmington, Delaware, He expects to spend most of today in Pennsylvania, finishing tonight in Pittsburgh at a concert with Lady Gaga after making a brief stop in Cleveland, Ohio, which is just across the border. Over the weekend, Trump, for his part, accused doctors of fabricating coronavirus deaths to make money. He suggested last night at his final rally of the day that he plans to fire Anthony Fauci right after the election, after his crowd chanted, fire Fauci. Trump pantomimed a physical fight with Biden. He mocked Fox News host Laura Ingram for wearing a mask at his rally. And he told reporters that he plans to file lots of lawsuits right after the election to get as many Democratic ballots as possible thrown out. As Trump traverses thousands of miles to hold 17 rallies in eight states during the final four days of the campaign, his closing message is a classic display of the kind of red meat tailored specifically to animate his most faithful fans. Convinced that it's too late to change the minds of voters who aren't yet sold on Trump, Tolu Olunarunipa and Josh Dossi report that the president's advisors are instead intensely focused on turning out those who are already behind him. Trump's decision to forego a broad, unifying closing message and instead double down on appealing to a narrow but enthusiastic slice of the electorate is a gamble. Whether it pays off or becomes a cautionary tale won't be known until after the polls close and the votes are counted. After Democrats built up a lead in early and absentee voting, more than 93 million people have now voted. Trump is banking on a surge of support on Election Day to make up ground and deliver him a second against the odds victory. In the Keystone state, Biden hardened his pitch. He said Pennsylvania, more than any other place, could decide the presidency, and he offered himself up as the candidate best equipped to halt the pandemic and heal the economic decline. In Pennsylvania, Trump won by fewer than 44,000 votes in 2016. Nevertheless, Democrats are roiling with angst. The worries Sunday included the question of whether Biden has done enough to motivate African-American voters, a concern real enough that at his first event of the day on Sunday, which featured black pastors, Biden made a very explicit pitch about how he has not taken the black community for granted. And a Washington Post-ABC News poll released Sunday showed Biden leading Trump in Pennsylvania by seven points. Another poll that we conducted and released Sunday showed that the two candidates are essentially tied in Florida with Trump slightly ahead. 
That's another state the president narrowly carried in 2016, whose verdict will be critical to Trump's outcome. For Trump, Florida, as much as any other place, is a must win. Top Biden strategist Anita Dunn predicted on CNN Sunday that the country probably will know the results of the election by Wednesday, even if unofficially. In other election-related news, thousands of Trump campaign supporters stepped up their public show of celebration, promotion, and in some cases, tacit intimidation over the weekend as a nervous nation prepared to head to the polls. The events, from car caravans to mid-sized outdoor rallies, and on Sunday, the apparent blocking of roadways across the Democratic controlled mid-Atlantic, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C. even, have been building in size as Election Day approaches. My colleagues Scott Wilson, Mark Berman, and Kayla Rubel report that on Sunday, a group of Trump supporters in a vehicle caravan was filmed literally shutting down the northbound express lanes of the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey. A man shooting video that he posted on Twitter can be heard yelling, quote, we shut it down, baby. It's unclear what they think they're going to accomplish by doing this, but the New Jersey State Police confirmed the parkway was blocked and that they're investigating. That stunt followed a similar, if more serious, one in Texas on Friday. Nearly 100 cars driven by Trump supporters surrounded, really swarmed, a bus carrying Biden-Harris supporters due to appear at scheduled rallies, forcing it to a near stop and almost pushing it off the road. The Biden campaign had to cancel the rest of the day's events. Trump championed that public disruption on Saturday night, posting a picture of the cars surrounding the bus and writing in all caps, I love Texas on Twitter. On Sunday, a spokeswoman for the FBI's San Antonio field office confirmed that the FBI is aware of this incident and investigating. Trump criticized the bureau for investigating his supporters and tweeted last night, quote, these patriots did nothing wrong. Instead, the FBI and justice should be investigating the terrorists, anarchists, and agitators of Antifa. There's growing concern about violence related to the results, and there's more and more data points that are really scary. Many buildings here in D.C. have been boarded up. A man who thought neighbors were stealing Trump lawn signs allegedly shot three people on Sunday in Topeka, Kansas. At least one of those shot was taken to the hospital with wounds considered potentially life-threatening. A peaceful march to the polls in North Carolina by Democrats was met with police pepper spray and arrests Voters chanting Black Lives Matter and Power to the People were attacked by officers in riot gear and gas masks who insisted demonstrators move off the street in Clare County property, even though they had a permit authorizing their presence. Fearing the end of democracy as we know it, more than 80 international and American scholars in authoritarianism wrote an open letter on Sunday forecasting a frightening regression. But despite the scary intimidation that's going on, the will of the American people to vote, to have their voices heard feels acutely strong this year. Amy Gardner reports that many people have logged all-day road trips or flown across the continent so that they can make sure their vote counts. In historic numbers across the political spectrum, they've latched onto voting as an essential act. Tiffany Cisneros, who's 32, voted Friday in San Antonio after losing her mom, her grandpa, and a 35-year-old cousin earlier this year to the coronavirus. Tiffany didn't vote in 2016 because she didn't think her vote mattered. Now she says, quote, you have nothing to lose if you do, and you have a lot to lose if you don't. If everyone who thought that voted, maybe the outcome would have been different. Before I go, I want to let you know about a new project from the Washington Post that's pretty cool. Beginning this week, through the two weeks following election night, You'll hear something new before each episode of the Daily 202's Big Idea. We're delivering election results to you based on the state that you're listening from. 
You'll get to hear results in key races, your state's congressional district, your U.S. Senate seat, and results in the presidential contest. We're serving these updates to you using advanced voice technology. You'll hear results from our Washington Post AI voice, Claire. Say hi, Claire. Hi, podcast listeners. Stay tuned to Washington Post podcasts during election week for 2020 election results delivered to you wherever you listen. Stay tuned to the Washington Post for election results, reporting, analysis, and much more. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. If you want to hear full episodes, find The Daily 202 every weekday morning wherever you get your podcasts.